0: Taught last time she shared with us about a new nutritional breakfast, <laughs> if you recall, lots of color. Yeah. And this, um, I think, would be the result of how to cope with what would be the results. <laughs> this is the correct way to weigh yourself. Mm-hmm. And uh, after. They're having M&Ms every day for breakfast that would be. Awesome. <laughs> All right, and <enough> of that. <laughs> okay, good morning ladies. Let's do a little catch up to where we are. We since we had our break last week. We have seen in our study of Acts that Paul is still in prison. The enemies of Jesus really had become the enemies of Paul. The religious Jewish leaders had managed to have him arrested, you recall, back in the temple. And it had been years now since Paul had been moved as a prisoner up to Caesarea. And that's where he has sat. Remember the Roman commander couldn't figure out Paul's crime had to go before the Sanhedrin and all that turned into a big argument about the resurrection. So then the plot to kill Paul was discovered so the Roman commander had him brought with a great deal of protection to Caesarea. So we saw last time that the trial before Governor Felix had him in a position where he couldn't find out, figure out any guilt of this man Paul. But Felix didn't want to rock the boat and upset the Jewish leaders who wanted Paul dead so he just kept Paul In prison for those years while he was governor and that brings us really to where we are in our study today as we look at Paul going to make another defense before a new governor who took Felix's place by the way I read there was an angry delegation of Jewish leaders who went back to Rome to complain about Felix and what a terrible governor he was and so he was recalled to Rome in disgrace but replaced by a man of nobility named Festus, who was considered by the historians far more competent than his predecessor. So he arrived on the scene, and of course he had to deal with the same issue that had been just left undone. There was this annoying situation regarding a prisoner that had no official charges against him, and if he released Paul, the Jewish leaders would be in a big uproar, And there still was the truth that he was a Roman citizen. You just can't hold a Roman citizen in prison with no charges. And that brings us to Festus, who was a very smart man. He's new on the scene, and he's going to deal with the issues that are pressing immediately. And that's what he does. So he goes, Paul goes before Festus. We see, first of all, Festus visits Jerusalem, his new place that he's in charge of. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul. And they were urging him to have Paul brought to Jerusalem and the whole let's set the ambush to kill him thing again. Festus was a smart politician. He wanted to move quickly to deal with the problems that were going on. So he met with the Jewish leaders and he wanted to have a peaceful relationship with them as their new governor. They had successfully blackmailed Pilate to have Jesus executed. They had pressured Felix to execute Paul. And meanwhile, there was this constant threat throughout the land of Israel of Jewish zealots who were always attacking the Romans, trying to get their freedom. So he really wanted to keep everything calm. So these men in Jerusalem had not forgotten about Paul at all. Out of sight was not out of mind in their estimation. As Festus met with them, the charges against Paul were the first order of business. They want Paul sent back to Jerusalem for a trial and just to get him out on the road so they can ambush him and kill him. However, Festus responded by saying, you know what, I'm on my way back to Caesarea and so send your most influential men for the case and we'll try him in the Roman court. Uh, Festus would not necessarily know about all the previous plots to kill Paul, but it's interesting that we saw before that it was a Roman commander, a soldier who protected Paul from being killed. And now we have again a Roman governor who unbeknownst to him is protecting Paul, not having him shipped back down to Jerusalem. So Paul is on trial again. We see in verse 6 that Festus was quick to keep his word, Within just a little over a week, Festus took his seat on the tribunal, orders Paul to be brought before him. There are a lot of serious charges that were being uh, brought against Paul, but just as earlier, before Felix, none of them could be proved. In his own defense, Paul denied each charge, stating he had not violated Jewish law, he had not desecrated the temple, he hadn't committed treason against Caesar, and on and on it went. So Festus finds himself in this exact same dilemma that Felix was in. Paul is a Roman citizen, falsely accused and innocent. But there would be a huge political backlash from the Jewish leaders if he just released Paul. So he decides to do a favor to the Jewish leaders and offer to go up to Jerusalem and have Paul stand trial there. Paul responds by saying, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you also very well know. Paul simply rejects this idea that now I'm going to go back and get a fair you know, trial with the Sanhedrin. He is a Roman citizen. This is a Roman court where justice is supposed to be carried out. Paul knew the plot would be likely attempted to kill him. So and he also knew that there would be no justice in Jerusalem. So being a Roman citizen meant Paul should get a fair trial. There was no real case against him. He wasn't obligated to put himself back in the hands of the Jewish high court. Because Festus was just so quick to want to appease these Jewish leaders, Paul is in a difficult situation. And so in verse 11 he says, If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true of which these men accuse me, No one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. This was the right of every Roman citizen to do. It meant that no lower court could decide the case, and so it was sent to the Roman uh, Caesar himself. Festus consulted his advisors, and they all agreed, you know what, his appeal is valid. I reminded that Paul had already spent two years sitting and waiting to have his case heard and decided upon. His heart had been so burdened to go to Rome for a long time. He worked within the framework of the law of the land when he made this appeal. He had submitted to the Roman government, just as he would instruct the Romans to do in Romans 13 and us as well. Again, we see how God in his providence reveals he is completely in control of human events. Because both the Sanhedrin and Festus wanted Paul back in Jerusalem, but God wanted Paul In Rome and God was actually going to use Rome to protect Paul to get him to the place he wanted him to be it's sad to see that the hatred for Paul never wavered never declined even though he had been out of sight for two years I couldn't help but think that when people choose to hate it is a blindness that really controls you hatred doesn't weaken because of time and it doesn't even hate uh, diminish when people die, that you hate, because the hatred is still there, even if they're dead. This sinful emotion becomes the entire focus of a person's life. It dominates them. As Jesus said, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And Peter wrote, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And that certainly was the case of these religious leaders. It is the reality for everyone who refuses to forgive. They live a life harboring hatred, and everything really in life is looked through through that lens and how that affects my hatred for that person, very dangerous. So Festus seeks counsel from King Agrippa. He realized he had to send this case of this appeal, but there has to be a crime associated with the man. He couldn't very once send him to the emperor with no list of crimes. And no doubt Festus would have thought, ah, oh, the gods have looked down on me with kindness because who shows up but a visit from Herod Agrippa II and his lovely sister, Denise. He is the last of the Herodians to be in rule, and he really didn't rule per se. Uh, If he went on Ancestry.com, he didn't have to go very far to find a very sordid background, which he probably was quite comfortable with. Agrippa was the great-grandson of Herod, who killed all the boy babies in Jerusalem who were under two, um, angry at the wise men. And then he was the son of Herod, who killed the Apostle James in Acts 12. His great-uncle was Herod Antipas, the ruler that cut off the head of John the Baptist and later tried Jesus. So, um, then there was this whole scandal with Bernice that was, she was more than a sister to him. They were lovers, but sometimes she would leave her brother for other men. She was married, divorced, she was a mistress to Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus. I thought... I don't know what this lady looked like, but she was a multi-generational <laughs> woman. I, you know, that she could have that many men interested. Anyway, she always returned back to her brother, and there, therefore they arrived together. Agrippa didn't rule, as I said, really in Judea. He was given control over the temple sanctuary, and he had the right to appoint the high priest. So Rome looked at him as somebody they could look at as an expert in Jewish matters, and the Jewish people looked at him as an absolute traitor. So, his capital was Caesarea Philippi, that's just northeast of the Sea of Galilee, and this likely was a courtesy call. Oh, we have a new governor in town, well, let me come meet you. But it really was a timely visit, and certainly a God-ordained visit. uh, As he visits Festus, and here's an opportunity uh, for Paul to give the gospel then to Herod Agrippa. Agrippa found this whole matter about Paul very interesting, and being partly Jewish himself, he could possibly shed light on what these Jewish people are thinking, what their big problem is, helping Festus to come up with the proper charge to send with Paul to Rome. So in verses 13 through 22, Festus simply tries to sum up the case against Paul and the political pickle he himself was in as there was pressure to do something to Paul when Paul was innocent. So Festus talks about the case about Paul and you really see his mindset in verse 19 where he says, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion, which really I think the word is like superstition, and about a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's his whole look at the case. His whole affair baffled Festus. Paul seemed like an intelligent man, yet he claims that there's a dead man who came to life. So after talking to Agrippa, Festus arranged for Paul to have another hearing before the king for his request. So that brings the arrival. Imagine all the pomp that you've seen if you've ever watched anything in England with royal families and weddings and funerals and all of that that goes on. Well that's just a little hint of the picture that came on here with all the pomp with Agrippa and Bernice entering the auditorium in their grand wardrobes with their pageantry, uh, stunning royalty, all dressed out in purple robes and crowns and jewels and maybe scepters in hand. Included were five tribunes in uniform and the prominent men of the city, all decked out in their finest, all pleased that they're the up and uppers, and they're there. And the dignitaries were seated, and then Festus gave the command to bring Paul in. Festus now announces to the dignitaries, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. So from the perspective of everyone present, this was just a political case of interest. But the God of the universe had orchestrated all of these things so that Paul, as he was told in Acts nine fifteen, would bear witness for Jesus to the Gentiles and before kings. In the bigger picture, Once Paul gives his defense, all of the people gathered there that day will have heard the truth of how they can be saved eternally from the penalty of their own personal sin. It's a good reminder to all of us who know the Lord that his plans reach far beyond our little perspective of things. The people that you and I cross paths with, whether it's in a doctor's office, a hospital room, a courtroom, a school office, a neighborhood, a job, an extended family member, whatever, these are all placed to cross our path by God's design. He has a purpose. And maybe what He has to do in your life to get you to this place, to talk to this person, may seem a bit convoluted and unpleasant at times. But God works all of these opportunities out for a purpose. And Paul saw every situation that way to share the gospel. He had courage now as he stood before these dignitaries to proclaim the testimony of Jesus. Paul really wasn't on trial at this point. Rather, uh, this has all been arranged because of King Agrippa's interest in Paul and helped Festus out with what to write to Nero. But Paul sought for what it really was. God had brought these people from all over Judea to be in this one room and he has the platform. What an opportunity. So the next we see is the testimony of Paul before King Agrippa. And Paul was prepared, which I think is a good example to us. We ought to be prepared because we don't know what opportunity is going to cross our path where we need to speak up for the Lord. Find a word, find a medium point where we can say, oh. Paul gives his defense and the gospel. He says, in verse 1 we read, Agrippa says to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. We see that it is Agrippa who's in charge at this point, who took charge, and it seems that Paul is really addressing him as he speaks. Paul uses his hand signal many times, as he's done before, that he's ready to speak. And he says, in regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself very fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He was glad to be able to present his case before someone who actually had a little bit of understanding of Jewish culture and the issues at hand. He's speaking with sincerity. He knew Agrippa had a Jewish background, though he lived in the Roman world. This man would have had a much greater understanding of the Sanhedrin and Jewish law. So Paul sees this as a great opportunity to share the gospel with the king, who desperately needed the Jewish (coughs) Messiah, Jesus. So Paul implored Agrippa to listen to him patiently. Paul has had a lot of opportunities opportunities speaking where he's cut off in the middle, you know, by riots and yelling and screaming. So, he asked could we just hear me out all that I have to say. So, in a brief time that Paul has, he's going to give a well-thought-out presentation and oops, and he's going to make that point. His first point will be to explain the Messiah Jesus has been resurrected. And then he'll move on to talk about the total transformation in his own life. So the background of Paul's religious life. He says, so then, all Jews know my manner of life. from my youth, up. it was no secret, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a very long time, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee, according to their strictest sect of the religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul is stressing he was devout in his faith. He was one of the ones who are accusing, only he used to be with them, and now he is the one being accused. Numerous religious leaders could attest to that reality. The hope that he was on trial for was the belief that there was a promised Jewish Messiah that would come. From this statement, Paul jumps into the crux of the matter, and he states, why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? Throughout the Old Testament promises of God there was the promise of a Messiah who would come and the whole world would be blessed because of this Messiah and he would establish his kingdom one day. Paul was accused by the Jewish leaders for proclaiming the very hope of this promise being fulfilled because he believed it was fulfilled in Jesus. In reality God had fulfilled every Old Testament promise through Jesus who proved he was God because of the resurrection. So Paul Paul completely understood the faulty, hostile thinking of his enemies because he had been one of them. He says, I cast votes to have followers of Jesus killed. He had put Christians in jail. He had voted for their death. He had tried to force them to recant and deny the faith. Paul himself had been enraged with followers of Jesus and zealous, and that's what he was on his way to do, go get some more and bring them to prison. But then the radical change. When you have the opportunity to talk to someone about the Lord, everyone has this same situation. There was a time in your life where you didn't understand your own sinful state. Then the light of the gospel is shared with you. You realize you're in a bad way because you've offended a holy God. You understand the truth is presented. You trust Jesus, and now your life changes from here on out. So that's what Paul is doing in his testimony. So that's what he was before, a zealous religious man. But then a blinding light dropped him to the ground, and a voice said to him in his own Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. As you saw, goats are sharp rods that were used to herd cattle. Terrified, he says, who are you, Lord? I, I just can't even imagine Paul's shock. All of this zeal directed to the wrong people. And Jesus says, It tells him, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Jesus goes on to say that I have chosen to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. And what was this message? And here is the key to understanding the gospel message. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all who have been sanctified or set apart by faith in me. Here is the plight of everyone born into this world. People are born spiritually dead and spiritually blind and need to have the truth of their eyes opened The truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4 tells us the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving. So we're not only born spiritually dead, we can't see anything because we have an enemy making sure nothing makes sense in a spiritual realm. It is the work of the Holy Spirit who uses the word of God to remove that blindness. And when people see the reality of their own sinful state and are convicted about their sins, realizing that God is a holy God. They turn from their sin, from the darkness of their sin to the and the sphere of Satan, and they turn by faith to Jesus. The scriptures declare that we're all born sinful. There is none righteous, no not one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none who even seeks after God. We're all in the dark. The message of the Bible is that each of us individually must see our sinful state. Personally, before Holy God, and be aware of our sins. And we must turn from the darkness, from our sin, our love of our sin, to the truth of the light about who Jesus is. The result is salvation. He says, the forgiveness of sins. This message was for King Agrippa to hear and for everyone else gathered in the room that day. And it's for everyone sitting here as well when we come to that place where we see our sins, that we have offended a God who is holy, just by our own indifference. And we realize that Jesus' death on the cross was actually a payment made in order to satisfy a holy God's wrath against sin. The reality is we can be forgiven and then reconciled to a holy God and then given an inheritance besides that. What an amazing truth of the gospel. Paul's appeal to Agrippa then is to believe this. Paul had to make a human response that moment on the road to Damascus as he's laying on the ground blind. Am I going to reject this? Or am I going to believe it? And that's why Paul says, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to everybody in Damascus first and then Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles, and here again, that they should repent turn to God performing deeds appropriate to repentance this is the gospel ladies each of us must make a response to this claim of who Jesus is salvation requires that we repent that is we turn to God and turn away from our sins and have deeds appropriate with repentance that means there is going to be a change this means there is a change of mind about our sin which will result then in a change of how we're going to behave. People who truly repent and turn from their sin to God have their lives changed. We see that this means that there is more to believing in Jesus and becoming in a right relationship with him than just mental acceptance of all of these facts to be true. I mean, people by the scores believe Jesus came to earth at Christmas, died at Easter, and rose again. And that's good I'm a sinner we're all sinners and he died for us and I'm good and when I was three I asked Jesus into my heart and I'm good but there's no life change there is no remorse there's no guilt there's no conviction of sin and offense to a holy God now when we turn from our sin that's turning from the domain of darkness we turn to the light who is Jesus And we are then saved from being judged for our sins because we put our faith in Jesus, being sufficient payment to a holy God. Everyone listening to Paul that day had to make a decision while they sat there. That's the same for each one of us. Everyone listening has to make that personal decision. Continue as you are, or radically change the direction of your life. This is the same decision required by you and I. The question really is, have you made that decision? Festus said to Paul, you are out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Paul kindly responds, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth for the king knows about these matters and I speak to him also with confidence. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? This is Paul putting his finger on King Agrippa. He says, I know that you do. Agrippa's response to Paul is, in a short time, uh, you will persuade me to become a Christian. This isn't a guy open to the truth. Oh, I'm thinking about it. No, I mean, are you kidding me? You think you're going to convince me? This was uh, a response. This was his response. If Agrippa admitted he believed the prophets, then he would also be admitting that what Paul said about the fulfillments of the prophets' message was fulfilled in Jesus, and that that would be the truth. So he simply diverts the question. Like many people do with a different answer or let's talk about this what about the heathen and whatever Paul's loving response is that he indeed hoped all who heard this testimony would come to believe in Jesus just as he had done Agrippa ended it right there getting a little too personal for him so I would plead with each of you if you've ever thought about your responsibility, well, have you thought about your responsibility to respond to this message of truth? Agrippa had to make a decision. Everybody in the room had to make a decision. Turn from your sins, you're living a life of independence. Basically all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned our own way. This is how we live our life. I'm doing the things that make sense to me. I'm in charge of my life. And that is the sin of independence and really rebellion against a holy God. And there is a point that each of us must come to where we recognize we are in deep trouble and we trust Jesus and his death on the cross alone to save us. It is by grace we are saved, by faith. God's undeserved favor for rotten sinners like us. Salvation costs God everything. So you know what, ladies? The world, ever since the gospel came into being, has been attacked. The gospel has been attacked through adding works to it, Judaizers did that at the get-go. Oh yes, you must believe in Jesus, but then you have to do this, just to be sure. That error is still everywhere in Christendom. But the bigger error that I see, especially at this time in history, is that it's a watered-down gospel. Give a mental assent. That's good, you're good, you're saved, you're going to heaven, everything's good. And there's no life change. There's no turning from sin. And it is an inaccurate presentation of the gospel being made, just watered down. You know, Jesus said, if you follow me and you take up your cross, count the cost. It is a cost. You don't just go, Yeah, I believe that. So I got my get out of hell free card for when I die, and I'm going to live life how I want to live. That's not how it is. The gospel requires a decision, a surrender of your life and your heart to him, a turning from your sin. Those who truly trust Jesus have their lives transformed. Their behavior changes, their attitudes change, their values change, their morals change, (laughs) their attitudes toward Christians change. There's a love, there's a love for God's word. All that's different, that's from a transformed heart. So, the life of a believer is about living in obedience to Christ and his word. And the moment we trust him, we are judicially forgiven as God is a judge and we are justified. And that's a wonderful thing. Past, present, future sins forgiven. But to stay in a fellowship and a loving relationship with Father, as believers, we continually repent moment by moment. That bad attitude, that angry word, that judgmental spirit, we are continually confessing and turning from our sins. May we have the courage to speak up to those who come across our paths and bring the truth about the darkness and the light. We are in such a dark I mean, it looks darker every day when you watch the news. And it's not going to get better. It's only going to get worse until Jesus comes <laughs> and rules this world in righteousness. So what about you? I hope that you've put your trust in him. and You're not just uh, depending on something you said or did when you were probably 10 or 12 and you've just lived the life you've always wanted to live. He comes in. He makes you new. He changes you from the inside out. So, Paul was a faithful to his master. He acted wisely in his appeal to Caesar. This pre- presented this whole opportunity to share this gospel with all of those people gathered there that day. And it set the stage for Paul to have a free escort safely to Rome, which is where he wanted to go and where God wanted him to go. You know, when Paul kept praying and saying, I want to go to Rome, I'm praying right to them, I want to get to you, I'm sure you never thought it would be in chains. You know, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are higher, and they are better than ours. How he brings things together to cross paths, he's doing something much bigger than our little perspective on life and our inconvenience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great God that you are. I thank you for Paul's boldness and willingness to uh, share the gospel anywhere, anytime, Lord, I pray that we would learn from him and that we would see the people who cross our lives as being placed there by you. Not for us to keep our mouths shut, but to share the truth that we have a hope in this very dark world. I thank you, Jesus, for paying for the debt of my sin and for all those who here who believe. I pray if there's anyone here, Lord, who hasn't called on you yet, that you will open her eyes to understand the gospel, and to put her trust in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.